Planetary Radio is Public Radio's only weekly series about space exploration. I'm Matt Kaplan, and I hope you'll join me as we explore Mars, look for life in the universe, and fly through the rings of Saturn. We'll talk with the men and women, scientists and dreamers who are guiding us to a future beyond Earth. And don't forget to enter our weekly space trivia contest. That's Planetary Radio, Mondays at 5.30 p.m., right here on KUCI. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM and KUCI.org. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer, and you can learn more about this show and our guests at KUCI.org slash privacy piracy. If you don't know our host, let me tell you a little bit about her. She's a local attorney and author of several books, including her two new books, Safeguard Your Identity and From Victim to Victor, a step-by-step guide for ending the nightmare of identity theft. She's testified many times in the California legislature and U.S. Congress and hosted her own 90-minute PBS special last year called Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. She's been featured on 48 Hours, Dateline, CNN, O'Reilly, Geraldo, and a lot of other shows. To learn more, you can visit identitytheft.org. So let's get started, Mari. Well, we have a wonderful guest coming to us all the way from Washington, D.C. this evening. And we've learned so much about what's been going on with the NSA surveillance, with the Patriot Act, with so many issues that are affecting us as individuals and our civil liberties. So we have invited uh, a wonderful guest and an attorney from the uh, Washington, D.C. office of the American Civil Liberties Union. Uh, His name is Timothy D. Sparapani. And he has, by the way, he's been really wonderful to me because we've been corresponding by email before I ever asked him to be on the show. He's been a wonderful resource for what's happening in Washington, D.C. with regard to privacy. So Tim Sparapani is legislative counsel for the American Civil Liberties Union in Washington, D.C., and their legislative office. And he focuses on lobbying Congress and the executive branch to protect the right to privacy. His efforts focus on preventing unnecessary intrusions into our privacy by individuals, companies, and the government. Prior to joining the ACLU, Tim Sparapani worked for four years for the Washington, D.C. law firm of Dickstein, Shapiro, Morin, and Oshinsky. And there he helped clients devise and execute integrated legislative, political, and legal strategies. In fact, he was an advisor um, to the senior policy staff of the Kerry Edwards uh, 04 campaign and the John Edwards for President campaign. And he advised them on such issues as the Patriot Act and other privacy issues that were facing us. While attending law school, he authored newsletters for the University of Michigan's Information Technology Department regarding the challenges of emerging technologies and privacy. And he also gained valuable Hill experience working with Senator Russell Feingold on matters before the Judiciary Committee. So he has lots of great experience, and he's going to help us to understand what's going on in Washington right now. Tim, thank you for joining us. Mari, it's a pleasure. Well, Tim... 
I want to thank you again for, for being so helpful in emails and keeping me informed and, and helping so many of us who are um, trying to do good in the privacy arena. So tell us, how is it that you got so involved in privacy? You know, Mario, I think it was by accident. Uh, some people fall into privacy because, unfortunately, they're victims of identity theft. That was me. <laughs> uh, and, and, unfortunately, too many uh, of your uh, listeners as well. For me, it was more of an accident. I went to the University of Michigan in law school and fell in with uh, a, a part of the, the law school that was looking at what information technology and emerging technologies, uh, what, what sort of pressures they were putting on society and what questions they were raising. We oftentimes talk about the great benefits of the information age, but there's a dark side as well, uh, and there are burdens that, that arise. And it was my work with uh, this division of the law school that began to open my eyes to some of those questions. Uh, and it, it helped me understand that we need to be debating in, in, in public uh, you know, the benefits and the burdens of the information age. Yeah, you know, I, I talk quite often with many people regarding the technology and how wonderful the technology is and all these great things that we can do. And what what seems to be happening is that the technology itself takes off without the safeguards. And I think that's what you're trying to do is remind everybody, the legislature and the executive branch, that we have to have some safeguards in this technology and, and how to protect ourselves, right? That's exactly right. So let's talk. Let's begin now with some of the pre-screening. You know, we've talked on this show, and I have a neighbor, this this poor sixteen-year-old kid who can't get on an airplane. He's on, he's on these watch lists. He has an Irish name, and every time he goes, he has this problem that he can't put his luggage through. He can't get his boarding pass. It hours in in you know waiting. They've they've written to TSA. They've tried to get him off, and it, he's still on there. So. What's wrong with trying to pre-screen passengers for airplanes, trains, federal buildings, whatever? What, what's going on with all this? Sure. Um, you know, although your show is about privacy, in, in some ways the concerns of, about the federal government maintaining watch lists of undesirable, undesirable people uh, go well beyond the privacy questions, and they, they reach more central questions about what kind of society we want, what kind of government we want. And there are questions about what sort of due process people should be given when they fall under suspicion, rightly or wrongly, by the government. Mm -hmm. And so there, there are questions that in some ways are, are greater than even the privacy questions. Uh, it's interesting that the government maintains watch lists, and we know that those watch lists are flawed. When they were formed shortly after 9-11, uh, every agency in the government sent in uh, the lists of people it considered to be uh, bad actors. Some of these people were deadbeat dads who weren't paying child support. Some of these people were common criminals. Uh, some of these people were drug smugglers. And many of the people who were on the list should never have been on any of the lists because they hadn't committed any crime at all, yet they'd come under suspicion. Uh, in the rush after 9-11, these lists were merged into what has become uh, known as uh, the no-fly or the watch list. Um, and that, that list, flawed from the beginning, uh, because it wasn't focused exclusively on known or suspected terrorists, has grown and grown and grown seemingly without any controls being placed over it, or very few. 
Um, so we started out with a flawed list. And that flawed list was supposed to be used for one purpose and one purpose only. Not to find drug smugglers, not to find common criminals, not to find people who weren't paying child support, but to try to find terrorists because they were considered the number one threat, and rightfully, uh, against this country. Right. Um, but we have a list that's far broader than that. So when people like your 16-year-old neighbor uh, get compared to this list, they're getting compared to a list not just of terrorists, but of people who've committed all sorts of other you know, potential crimes and some who have never committed a crime at all, but wrongfully came under suspicion. So that's sort of the first point. The list itself is flawed. Right. Um, you know, more broadly, uh, it's fair to say that um, when that list was created, it was based on the idea that a name could be enough to identify a terrorist who was about to fly. Well, if you believe, as I do, that that's really a specious uh, you know, argument that the government's making, then you can understand why the ACLU has long opposed screening passengers by name. Simply well, comparing also, we know that over half of the um, 9-11 terrorists were committing total identity takeover. That's right. And all of them had false documents. So I don't understand that rationale at all. Exactly. <laughs> screening against a, a, a list of names is premised on the idea that I find totally specious, that Osama bin Laden will go on to Expedia or Orbitz or <laughs> Northwest Airlines and register and buy a ticket under the name O. Bin Laden. Right. <laughs> using a credit card registered to O. Bin Laden uh, <laughs> at the address of Third Cave to the left somewhere in <laughs> Afghanistan. Right. And if you believe, as I do, that the threat against this country is real and it's substantial and that the terrorists are sophisticated actors, we know that that won't happen because the passenger pre-screening systems, secure flight and registered traveler that have been proposed by the Department of Homeland Security are predicated on that, you know, as I pointed out, a dubious premise. Uh, even, even more uh, ludicrous is the idea that Osama bin Laden will then show up after buying this ticket online under his own name using his own documents that say, you know, here's a driver's license that says, O bin Laden, or a passport that says, O bin Laden. Um, and, you know, I, I'm being a little bit facetious, but not very, because you have to understand that that's essentially the way the system works. Correct. Um, and and I, I imagine that if there's another attack, and I hope that there won't be, that terrorists will do what they did during 9-11, which is they will either steal somebody else's identity, or they will forge an entirely new identity. And it will evade this idea of a watch list, because the name used the name that the person will attempt to travel under, won't be the name on this watch list. So what's the answer? Well, the answer is that we shouldn't be invading the privacy of Americans who are flying uh, or, or lawful permanent residents who are here in this country. Uh, we shouldn't ask them to submit names and all sorts of information to a government database that can't improve our security. Uh, just recently, we found out again that the TSA itself, the Transportation Security Administration, isn't capable of securing the data that they receive. For example, it was just reported that TSA lost information uh, about its own former employees. Mm. So here it is, the agency that's supposed to be gathering all of these records, 1.8 million per day of airline passengers in the United States, and they can't even secure their own employees' 
social security numbers and other sensitive information. Oh, I say we, we, we can't trust this agency with this task, and we shouldn't because there's no security benefit to it. So why threaten privacy? Why expose our information uh, to identity thieves, to, to loss through a data breach uh, with an agency that doesn't have its own house in order? And not only that, isn't it true that TSA has gotten a lot of its information from the information brokers who have no oversight and have no duty, really, to make sure that the data about us is correct? That's right, Mari. Um, TSA has, has long sought to you know, buttress its, its own flawed data uh, from those flawed watch lists with the data that they can obtain through purchase from commercial data brokers like ChoicePoint, or Axiom, or LexisNexis, uh, the kind of data broker companies I'm, I know your listeners are familiar with. And those companies have absolutely no duty to uh, have accurate information, to maintain uh, files that are really about the person who they claim to be about. We know that ChoicePoint routinely merges files uh, from people with similar names. So all the D. Nelsons in this country, and there are tens of thousands, can have their files merged together accidentally by choice point. And then that flawed information can be sold to TSA. Well, we shouldn't let that happen, and we shouldn't let TSA have access to this unregulated, uh, uncorrected commercial information that's been gathered about us. And we know that there's so many errors. For example, with the credit reporting agencies, they mix files and merge files with the Dean Nelsons and the John Doe's and the, you know, Bill Johnson's, right? I mean, they do that all the time, but at least we have the opportunity to review it and to correct it and to dispute it. And we don't have that opportunity right now, at least as it is under the law, with these major data brokers to be able to see that information and to dispute it and have them correct it. So that's the stuff that's being sold to d the Department of Homeland Security. What, what kind of craziness is, I mean, I remember I, I testified for uh, Senator Bill Nelson with uh, S-600, and that just went away to have some oversight over these commercial brokers. Is there any chance that any there's going to be oversight for these data brokers so at least they'll have accurate information? Sadly, Mari, uh, as you point out, the commercial data broker industry is an entirely unregulated industry. Almost shocking in America, right, that there could be an industry without true statutory or regulatory oversight. But it's true. This this uh, industry with companies like ChoicePoint and Axiom and LexisNexis and a dozen other smaller companies has absolutely no statutory oversight whatsoever. And that means, unfortunately, that they are free to do uh, sloppy work uh, of compiling dossiers that are they sell to the highest bidder, including all sorts of government agencies. Um, Unfortunately, the prospects for legislation to control this industry seem to be fading fast. Uh, this Congress is about to end, and it, it's clear that industry lobbyists uh, were able to scuttle uh, movement towards controlling that industry. And we can, we can be hopeful. Certainly the ACLU is advocating for a regulatory framework that at least would apply the fair information practices uh, and principles to this industry um, in the future. But the prospects for passage of that legislation unfortunately seem dim right now. So w what stage are we then with the secure flight? I mean, and the registered traveler, are we are we really at any kind of uh, clarity or 
you know, can people find out right now what what uh, what's being you know the watch list that they have about them? I mean, what's going on with Secure Flight? Is there any oversight really that's happening? Well, let's separate out those those questions a little bit. Uh, first of all, Secure Flight. Uh, which is the passenger pre-screening system we were talking about, and Registered Traveler, which is a, a supposedly voluntary program right, right. for primarily targeted at business travelers who would give up large amounts of their own personally identifiable information, supposedly for quicker security checks, although we dispute that that would happen. Both of those programs are, are stuck uh, in a morass right now um, because t- enough people in Washington are finally recognizing the passenger pre-screening based on names and using commercial data from commercial data brokers just simply cannot provide any additional security and provides all sorts of headaches while creating enormous privacy and uh, constitutional risks to individual travelers. So although although these programs were proposed several years ago, they remain uh, stuck uh, and unlikely to be implemented anytime soon. And I think that's a good thing for our privacy because it allows uh, cooler heads to prevail and for people in Congress to focus on doing things that are actually going to improve security. For example, actually screening the cargo that is shipped in every single commercial airplane each day uh, by commercial uh, Right, and entities. the ports. I mean, that's really scary. These huge containers, what could be coming in to, you know, we're here in California, we have Long Beach, California, where these huge containers come in. <laughs> and you wonder, you know, what what kind of screening is there in those things? You know, essentially none. Right. And um, that's, that's what we have claimed, what the ACLU has long claimed is the greater risk. Uh, somebody shipping in a bomb. Uh, an explosive, uh, a weapon, either on a plane or in cargo that's being brought into this country. And we've advocated that because Homeland Security dollars and time are scarce, that we ought to focus on the greatest threats first, especially when they have a far lesser uh, probability of reducing privacy and civil liberties. And here it's it's incumbent upon the, the Department of Homeland Security to finally, five years after 9-11, get its act together and focus on those threats uh, rather than screening names against uh, a flawed list. You know, we had a, a great guest, a security expert, Bruce Schneier. I don't know if you know who he is. But he came on and said, you know, um, the kind of screening that they do in Israel, and, and they're used to a lot of terrorism over there, is they don't do racial profiling. They do by psychological profiling. How are people acting? What what are they doing? Because, you know, the, the, many of the Arabs and Israelis look very much alike. And in terms of the, you know, you can't just pull out someone and say, ah, oh, this one is from, you know, the, the Middle East, because they're off in the Middle East. So they do a different kind of uh, profiling by how people are acting. They pull them out if they look like they're nervous or they're acting in a strange way. What does the ACLU think about that kind of a thing? You know, we, we oppose both racial profiling and this kind of uh, behavioral profiling that has been advocated um, by some. Um, I, I think Bruce is, is right on in, in saying that we shouldn't be doing profiling based on country of origin or ethnicity or race. And, and I'm not sure that uh, I would agree with him about, about this behavioral profiling. Here's why. Uh, first, as to racial profiling or ethnic profiling or country of origin profiling, um, we know from the Israeli experience, who became the best profilers in the world, right. <laughs> that as soon as a profile of a potential terrorist is developed, 
as soon as we decide it's an 18-year-old male between the ages of, you know, I'm sorry, a male between the ages of 18 and 35 who's Muslim from a certain, you know, country and undereducated, that the terrorists will continue to adapt. Right. And, and they'll that, get that, women. That they, means that's right. Yeah. They'll change the profile. It'll become a woman who's the next terrorist. It'll be an elderly gentleman. Uh, they'll, they'll stick a bomb in a baby carriage. All sorts of things to evade the profile. Same thing is true here for behavioral profiling. As soon as it's known that the government is looking for people who sweat too much uh, through an airport um, or who, who seem nervous, uh, we're going to be ending up screening literally millions of American passengers each and every year and putting them through a hassle, causing them to miss flights. I mean, I can't name a single person who hasn't had to sprint through an airport at one time <laughs> or another uh, to, to make it to a gate, to make a connection. Uh, you know, I've, I've arrived dripping wet at all sorts of checking points, and I wouldn't want to be pulled out of line simply because, uh, you know, I, I was too hot right. or because I was nervous about flying. For goodness sakes, there's a, there's a cottage industry in this country of selling anti-flight anxiety medications. <laughs> right. You know, so what are we supposed to do? Pull all the Xanax, uh, <laughs> you know, users in this country, and say, oh, you're all on, you know, going to get additional screening. Well, I, you know, they had been using some things like, you know, the one-way tickets, and there there has been for a long time some kind of profiling by by actions, right? I mean, I know that there are friends of mine who had one-way tickets who got pulled out, which had nothing to do with, you know, nervousness. Do you, do you see any kind of um, profiling in that way by certain actions that they're taking that, that might be helpful to Homeland Security? Mari, what you're referring to is call, are called the CAPS-1 procedures. And the list of those types of behaviors or uh, you know, actions that people take that could trip additional security screening uh, are, are classified and have been since their implementation during the Clinton administration. Um, but we do know what some of them are. One of them, as you mentioned, is, is if somebody buys a last-minute ticket, they're likely to get additional screening when they arrive at the airport. Mm -hmm. um, some of them have been uh, the type of meal requested. So if I request uh, what, what United Airlines even last week was referring to as a, quote, Muslim meal, uh, it's far more likely that I'm likely to get tagged for additional screening. Mm -hmm. um, these are relatively blunt and um, probably not specific enough types of, of profiling to do us much good. Uh, it's only the really stupid terrorist now who would buy a one-way ticket. Um, and again, I, I suspect that the enemy that this country fights is far more sophisticated than that, far more likely to probe us and know what our defenses are, and will adapt around those type of you know relatively... Uh, blunt screening mechanisms. So do you have any suggestions besides, you know, I know what you're talking about with the Port Authority or, or whatever, but I think the American people are still five years later frightened in some ways about air travel, and they're willing to give up some, um, you know, in the name of security, they're willing to give up something, a little something, to feel a little bit safer, even maybe if it's just feel good. So what could we do that's less invasive um, that will at least address the issue of some security and have some meaning? Is there anything out there? You know, it's a fair question, Mari, and I would 
you know, return to first principles, which I think are we should be screening every piece of baggage that goes on a plane. We should be screening every bit of cargo that goes on a plane. Right after 9-11, the government did one very smart thing. It hardened cockpit doors, which I think, and if you ask uh, anti-terror experts within the government, uh, they'll agree that that simple change made it almost impossible for a terrorist or a group of terrorists to, to hijack a plane in the future. So that means the real risk is, will a plane be blown up in air? Right. And the only way to prevent that, the only way to add real security benefits to airline passengers and to begin to make Americans feel a little more safe, is to actually focus on whether an explosive is being brought on board or shipped in the belly of the plane. And it's shocking. But five years after 9-11, we are not anywhere near screening 100% of baggage. And we haven't even begun to demand that commercial cargo uh, shipped in every domestic flight be screened for explosives. If we do those two things, we're going to be a lot further along. And the American people are going to feel safer without having to give up their privacy and civil liberties. Right. I think another good thing that they did, and actually a friend of mine was just recently on a plane where somebody was drunk and got belligerent and was trying to get into the cockpit door, and suddenly two marshals jumped up and subdued him and didn't kill him or anything, just subdued him, wrapped him up, and took him, you know, and everybody was okay. But they were all terrified. But I think having the marshals on board in case something does happen is uh, is a little safer, too. Even though you don't know who the marshals are, you're glad to know that perhaps they're on board. I thought that was... Uh, what do you think about that? No, I, I agree with you <laughs> that the marshals have, have served a valid purpose. Um, sometimes we find that mar- there aren't enough marshals to go around or they're not on enough flights. Uh, they're only on sort of higher-profile uh, destinations. Um, so maybe we need more air marshals. I think that would be fine. I think the American public would be comfortable with that. Right. Isn't that a privacy invasion? Sure. Mari, can I add one more thing? Sure, I'd like to talk absolutely. a little bit about, uh, you know, w- what else is wrong with this watch list system. Um, if we're going to go down this path of having watch lists, it seems clear to me that there ought to be a procedure for that 16-year-old neighbor of yours and every other person who's wrongfully uh, placed on a watch list or subjected to a- additional scrutiny and security measures every time they fly or try to travel. Right. I've we, heard they can't. I, I've heard, it, and in fact, the mother told me that when she wrote, they told her, well, we can flag it, but you'll never get off this watch list. That's exactly right. There <laughs> is, to date, Five years after 9-11, no true redress for anyone placed on a federal watch list. You can't see the watch list. You can't FOIA it. You can't get your congressman in there to figure out what it is that might have you know, put you on this list. And you certainly can't get your name or your information expunged. So these stains, these uh, black marks that the government has placed on certain individuals' names, will follow them around uh, until there's some resolution by Congress. And I'm, and I'm worried for this 16-year-old who will be applying to colleges, who's going to be applying for jobs. You know, who knows where this information will be duplicated or replicated? That's right. Even we know we know that bad data travels. It mutates. Uh, I like to think of it as uh, like, like cancer and that it metastasizes and then it travels. It breaks off and forms new cells. And even if you cut out one of those cancerous cells, you have to go out and find all of them, and you never can. And you can't. And that's the privacy issue. How do you control your personal information? Indeed. 
which leads us to another huge issue that I know the ACLU has been involved with, and that's the Real ID Act. Can you explain to my audience what that is? Because I'm, I'm not sure everybody really knows it, and, and how is it being implemented or not being implemented? Mari, I'm glad you asked. This is, uh, from my perspective, and I think the ACLU's perspective, uh, the number one privacy concern uh, facing this country other than the direct spying by the National Security Agency or on, on American citizens' conversations. The Real ID Act was enacted uh, in, on May 11th of 2005, and what it will attempt to do is federalize the, the state-based process of issuing driver's licenses to citizens. And, and so w- what does that mean? That means that the federal government, for the first time, will be imposing extensive mandates on the types of information that states will have to gather from every single driver's license holder in the country. And then that information will have to be, by mandate, shared with all three million federal, state, and local government of- officials without any privacy protections whatsoever. Um, the states will have access to everybody else's information. And the information collected will be everything from biometric data, including a digital photograph, a digital fingerprint, uh, your social security card, your birth certificate, uh, your proof of residence, um, and your entire driving history, mm-hmm. all in one computer file, all accessible by millions, as I said, of, of federal, state, and local government employees. And so, and maybe hackers, because we've heard about, you know, millions of people who have been affected by security breaches, and, and a lot of those have been security breaches with the government. That's right. It's, you know, it's well known now that 50% or more of data breaches are actually, uh, actually happen uh, at a government agency or, or a government entity like a university. Right. Um, and this system, which will be, man- which has been mandated, uh, will create a wide open system that will contain, unfortunately, every American's most sensitive, personally identifiable information in one place. So I've called it the honeypot for identity thieves. Because if you get into this system, you've got everything you would ever need to impersonate somebody else, to break into their bank accounts, to open loans under their name, to forge their identity, to commit either criminal acts or you know, for an illegal immigrant to, to assume somebody else's work eligibility, uh, or, God forbid, uh, become a terrorist under somebody else's name. Yes. And to travel freely for, throughout this country. So the Real ID Act um, is, I believe, the privacy enemy number one uh, of the public. Uh, it is the thing most likely to drive identity theft in the near future. Um, so so how will this be funded? Now, that that's a huge issue, isn't it, to be it's, able to do this? Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. Uh, the, the, the frank answer is that nobody knows. Uh, this unfunded mandate, which Congress said, sent to the states, uh, has been estimated uh, to, to be a burden to the states of between 10 and $17 billion, depending on who you ask. Last year... Uh, Congress, after passing the act, appropriated a total of $40 million that the states got to split amongst themselves. Um, so it's not clear who's going to make up the additional uh, you know, 10 to $17 billion, um, and it certainly won't be Congress. 
Now, I, I had been at a, at a conference with privacy people in which there was discussion about private industry getting involved and in helping to fund this, you know, uh, Real ID Act, you know, the, the uh, driver's license by also embedding it in this, quote, smart card, your, your credit card numbers and all sorts of other things. Is that still on the docket there? You know, because Real ID's regulations are being discussed and debated right now by the Department of Homeland Security, no one quite knows yet the shape of, of the card that will emerge. States have until May of 2008 to implement the standards changes that, that DHS will eventually mandate, um, and, and those are still forthcoming. But we do know that industry uh, I- industries are all over uh, this, this process and want to get a part of it. They want to get a piece of the action. Uh, for example, the RFID industry is So we'll need to tell our people, radio frequency identifier, those little chips that are maybe the size of a piece of sand that have, you know, little antennas in them. You know, I just wanted to just interject that so people know what those are. Sure. Um, the RFID industry uh, wants to put a chip on every ID card uh, so they can, uh, you know, sell more of these chips and produce a tracking device uh, that will contain all of the information on the card in one machine-readable zone. Um, other card makers and other biometric uh, companies want to get involved. They want to produce uh, cards with high-tech you know, facial recognition software capabilities so that uh, anytime you go into a government building, the, the card could be scanned and it could be compared to a database of your, your picture taken uh, when, you, when you got your license. Yeah. You know, it, they want to be able to scan crowds um, using video cameras and surveillance techniques and then compare them against the master list of driver's license photos that's, that will be created under the Act. And so there's lots of companies who want to have access to the contracting process that will result from this federal mandate. Um, now, the, the states are going to opt into this, and if they don't opt in, what's going to happen? Is that well, how it works? or do, it, Tell me exactly how that's going to work. Sure. Uh, the way that it works is that every state is told they have to uh, participate in the act. Now, there are a number of states that have said, hey, wait a minute, we're not going to endanger the privacy of our citizens. Right. We're not going to bear the costs of doing this. And so New Hampshire uh, came very close uh, during the spring of having the legislature opt out of the Real ID Act's uh, mandates. Uh, New Mexico may be another state that is, is looking at doing something um, in, in terms of opting out. In California, uh, the governor of California has, has got a piece of legislation in front of him that would prevent uh, RFID legislation, I'm sorry, RFIDs from being used for any state-issued identity card. And that would be a good thing uh, that would, you know, change the, the, the national uh, structure of, of the real ID cards that are created. Because if California says no RFID, uh, it will be very difficult for other states to have an RFID uh, tag on their cards because the the states need to be able to read each other's cards. Why don't they just use a barcode? Well, they certainly could, but you know, a barcode uh, isn't in any way secure. Uh, anyone with a barcode reader uh, can can have that card swiped and steal all of your information in one place. Because one of the act's more onerous mandates 
says that all of the information that's available in the database about you, your social security card, your birth certificate, your proof of residence, all of your driving history, etc., has to not only be in the database that's created about you, but it also has to be in the machine-readable oh. component on the card. Oh, why is that? I mean, I can understand if they want it in the database, but I, I would think that, you know, if they could just limit what they have to show, you know, when they, you know, get swiped or something, you know, as they would with an RFID. The RFID is also insecure, isn't it? But yes, that's right. I mean, any of the machine-readable component possibilities, either a barcode, an RFID chip, or even a 3D uh, barcode system, um, are all insecure. And they're insecure because the Department of Homeland Security has to date resisted calls by the privacy community to mandate that there be protections built into uh, that machine-readable component to prevent skimming by identity thieves or skimming by commercial entities. Uh, and I think that that's a great threat. Let me let me spin out this scenario for you. Okay. You go to your quickie mart around the corner because you need a gallon of milk uh, and a loaf of bread while you're getting getting the gas for your car. And uh, when you go to present your debit or check card, uh, the nice young clerk behind the counter says, "You know, sir, we want to do uh, anti-fraud protection here." So please give me your new real ID driver's license so that I can swipe it and verify oh dear. that you are who you say you are and you are the actual holder of the debit or check card that's being presented for payment. Uh, and, and two things happen in there. Because the Real ID Act doesn't prevent skimming, uh, the, commercial de- uh, the, the actual uh, commercial entity, the, the, the Quickie Mart, can immediately scan your card and gather all of your information, put it in one place, mm. and then do two things with it. They can either give you sort of a frequent buyer card, probably a good benefit for you, but also will lead to other spam mail uh, being sent to you, being uh, emailed to you from the Quickie Mart. Or the Quickie Mart can turn around, and more likely they can create a new source of revenue for the Quickie Mart, which is that they will sell that purchase record information to one of those data broker companies we were talking about earlier. Right. ChoicePoint, LexisNexis, West, you know, et cetera. And ChoicePoint wants that information because it's a perfect record of how much money you spend and how you spend it, when you spend it, where you go, what your, you know, consumer preferences are. Right. So they can sell that again to, to marketers, right? And, and to the government itself. <laughs> right. And so it completes the total eavesdropping uh, dossier on every American uh, because the Real ID Act doesn't prevent commercial entities from gathering this information. Uh, we already have been told about companies that have, have recognized this, the capabilities coming in, that this revenue stream is a po- possibility for them. So uh, it's a grave threat to personal privacy, and it's not. Um, the good news is that it's not too late. I think for people to say to the Department of Homeland Security and to their state legislators, we can't do this. You know, we need to opt out and we need to protect our privacy. We need to build in stronger protections than Congress did, um, because Congress didn't build any protections in at all. Well, isn't this similar to the to the uh, passport now? Doesn't the passport have an RFID built into it as well? You know, the the RFID chip that is uh, now issued as of August of 2006 
in the new uh, federal passports um, was shown during testing to be insecure. Uh, it was found that with relative ease, people could hack into the chip itself and steal information, or they could read it from a great distance. So after uh, having this demonstrated to them, the State Department built a, uh, a new type of passport uh, security system around the RFID chips that are issued. They call it a Faraday cage. And essentially, the idea is that the, the RFID chip should only be readable from a very small number of centimeters uh, in proximity uh, to, to the reader. So the passport has to be within just a few centimeters of the reader itself um, to, to actually indicate the information and to transmit the information that's embedded in the chip. Um, what if the passport's stolen? Uh, the, some, it's a great question, Mari. I mean, <laughs> that's what I would worry about is yeah. maybe, okay, maybe it can only be read from a few inches. Or if I am the holder and I've got my passport and I walk through a gate and I show it to him, but I'm worried about what if it gets stolen? It's a great question. Like any ID card that would, would carry personally identifiable information, uh, an RFID-enabled uh, passport can be stolen and then have all the information skimmed off of the passport with relative ease. Anyone can go on to, to, to uh, the Internet and buy an RFID reader for about $250. And so the idea of enabling identification cards with these high-tech chips will actually lead to vastly increased identity theft. Uh, and yeah, and and that's what I'm concerned about. So that wh when that was brought up to Congress, what happened? Well, Congress kind of shrugged its shoulders and said, "Well, you know, we're going to build in these. Uh, we're going to tell the State Department to build in the, these extra, you know, protections. This Faraday cage, right. which reduces the read radius of the the, the actual chip." But uh, is there any way to turn off that chip if it's lost or stolen? Boy, I wish there were. You know, essentially you have to smash the chip, uh -huh. and when you when you do that, uh, you're in for you know lengthier lines uh, every time you come in and out of the country. Right. But right. imagine the situation. You know, you you travel to a foreign country, you you lose your passport or it's stolen, and it ends up in the hands of an identity thief. There is no way for a United States citizen to be able to get uh, access. Or, or get control over their identity again mm -hmm. if it ends up in the hands of a foreign identity thief. Well, I was just thinking how they talked about, you know, the, all these RFIDs that are going to be in clothing, you know, like Walmart says they want RFIDs. And they're talking about ways that it can be deactivated when you leave the store, that, that you know, the people that are concerned about RFIDs and commercial products are saying, well, that... It seems if we can think of that, that should be able to happen, that you should be able to turn it off and on as the, you know, as the holder of, of the owner of the product or of the passport. But, but is that not capable yet? Is that what the problem is? Unfortunately, the State Department resisted calls to control the information broadcast from RFIDs, mm. um, as you suggested. Uh, maybe uh, wiser heads will prevail, and in time we will, re you know, see a change to the uh, information technology architecture built into those new passports. But as of now, there is no uh, ability to turn off 
the transmission of, of the information on those chips. I got to reintroduce you. We are speak. It's been so exciting. I forgot to reintroduce you, which I usually do every 15 minutes. But we are speaking with Timothy Sp- uh, Sparapani, who is the legislative consul for the ACLU in Washington, D.C. He's very knowledgeable about privacy and technology issues. And he's helping us understand what's going on in Congress now in, in terms of our privacy and our technology issues here. So what should we do about the Real ID Act? You said that, you know, the good news is is that it hasn't really been implemented with the states yet. What what should we be doing if we're worried about this? There's still time for your listeners and for other concerned people to do a couple of things. One, you can demand that the Department of Homeland Security and your state build privacy protections into the new driver's licenses that are to be issued under the Rail ID Act. Alternatively, and better, you can recognize what the ACLU has recognized, that the, the sheer cost and the dangers presented by these driver's licenses make their implementation of the Real ID Act far less likely. You can demand that your governor and your representatives in your state say, my state is not going to participate in the Real ID structure. We are not going to put our citizens' information at risk, and we are not going to accede to these you know, incredibly expensive federal mandates that won't lead to any advanced security. And it will probably lead to uh, a new black market in identity theft. Right. Well, I'll tell you, uh, I sit on the uh, task force, the privacy task force for the Department of Motor Vehicles, along with several of us who, you know, Beth Givens and others who have put in our two cents about the, bio, you know, what do we think about the biometrics? And we were asked a bunch of questions and we gave our, our feelings about it and our concerns and gave as much information as we could. So I don't know exactly where that stands. They're going to come back with a recommendation um, to the government about what should be done and and how this we can implement the Real ID Act if we're going to do that. But it sounds like we're going to have to make a big fuss about it first to see if we can get any changes in it. Now, do you what do you think about having um, just a driver's license that? Someone can't, for example, if someone has um, an accident in another state, um, should we be able to, in California, should we be able to get that information, our, our government, should they be able to get the information from another state about that person's driving record without much problem? Should that be easy? Well, I think, uh, you know, we all, unfortunately, have accidents. We all have things that are probably in our driving record that we wouldn't want uh, passed along, and we we all want to you know make our amends for taking that illegal U-turn or that that left turn without stopping appropriately, uh, and we want those things to stay in our past, and we want to you know be able to move beyond them. If there's a real need for a for the state of California and its motor vehicle department to know that somebody uh, had committed you know uh, had an accident in, a, in, a, in another state then I can imagine a situation where that, sh- that, that piece of information and only that piece of information was shared. But what the state of California doesn't need is all the other personally identifiable information to come along with it. So we can devise a much smarter system than the one that Congress has mandated, which minimizes the information shared, which targets the information only to the people who need to have it. So instead of giving it to uh, every um, you know federal, state, and local government employee 
and giving them full access to information. We can give it to police officers at the scene of an accident. We can give it to uh, law enforcement when they're doing an investigation of a suspect. We can give it to the motor vehicle department when they're checking out things like an insurance fraud. But we should control the information that flows between states and about people uh, when we're not talking about situations like that. And again, we should try to limit that information. You know, Tim, that goes right to the issues of the, pri- you know, of the privacy principles, the information privacy principles about collecting for a specific purpose, not using it for any other purpose, you know, only having those who have a need to know to have that information, and limitation of collection, all those things that we have totally forgotten about, <laughs> even though, you know, that was a mandate, you know, in the in the early 80s when we talked about the Privacy Act. What's gone on with the Privacy Act of 1974? Yeah, you know, there's a raging debate here in Washington about the continued viability of the Privacy Act. What what is what is not being debated is that the principles that you've discussed, the the Privacy Act principles, the fair information principles are alive and well and they should guide our future uh, you know, regulation and statutory uh, work uh, when we look at new technologies and when we look at what the government should be doing when it's gathering, collecting, sifting, and sorting information about the public. That's, that's not up for debate. Um, so those principles that embodied the, the original Privacy Act of 1974 are still alive and kicking. Um, so what needs to be changed to catch up with technology? Yeah, well, you know, one of the things we need to do is we need to to look at um, a, a really poor decision by the United States Supreme Court that I think sounded the death knell for the Privacy Act of 1974. There's a decision named um, uh, Doe versus Chow, and that decision several years ago uh, said that for anyone to sue a government agency that had lost information about them the person had to have suffered what the what is called a legal term of art actual damages meaning an actual financial loss had to have occurred before the person can sue under the privacy act and get recompense of some kind under the privacy act from that government agency um, and that decision that which required actual injury as opposed to the psychic injury that we all feel when somebody breaks into our bank account and the countless hours we lose talking to credit agencies and closing out our credit cards and getting new cards issued and getting new ID cards and trying to reclaim our identity. None of that uh, is now recompensable under the Privacy Act. And that decision has got to be reversed. Because what it means is that without uh, you know, a, a lower legal standard or the ability to people, for people who've had their identity stolen to uh, sort of get recompense for the government's sloppy handling of of personally identifiable information, it means that the government has no incentive to change its behavior and to control the information that it's gathering on people. Um, So I would argue we have got to have that decision reversed. We've got to say that when I've had an identity theft situation and it's caused by a government agency's failure to safeguard the data it has about me, I should be able to sue that agency, and I should be able to recover something for all those lost hours on the phone, on the Internet, trying to recreate my identity and close out the cards and accounts that have been made vulnerable by an identity theft situation or a data breach situation. Right. 
Right, and and that doesn't look very likely now with this uh, Supreme Court, does it? No, unfortunately, uh, but I think we could do it by statute, um, and I think Congress needs to revisit uh, that that decision and make the Privacy Act again a viable tool for individuals to enforce uh, the government uh, the government control over data. Now that leads us to the Privacy Act. Didn't they? Didn't it say that there should be no secret databases? Isn't that true that, that and, and someone should be able to see what database there is on them in, in the Privacy Act? Wasn't that one of the issues, too, that we should be, that a person who has been injured, okay, would have a right to see what the information that was gathered about them? Yeah, there's no question that that's one of the guiding principles of the 1974 Privacy Act. Okay, so so that goes to the issue of all of these databases, like the NSA surveillance, right? There's no question. Uh, The the 1974 Privacy Act emerged immediately in the post-Watergate era. Uh, And I think of it less as a privacy protection for the public, despite its name, and more of an open government or a sunshine-producing act that uh, opens up the government to scrutiny and requires that when the government acts, it has to do so in a transparent manner. And that means that the government under the Act, simply can't create a new database about people, can't begin to gather uh, a collection of information about citizens without informing the public and without uh, providing a right of access to the public unless they they claim one of the exemptions. Which is security, yep, national it, security. That's right. National security and law enforcement are the two big ones. Um, but at least when they do that, they have to tell the public through a notice in what is known as the Federal Register that they've done so. So at least the public's aware that the database has been created. Uh, we see, unfortunately, in this administration, a blatant disregard for the legal requirements uh, that any uh, new record system be made, uh, be made public, that we have an awareness as a group of citizens that the government's collecting information about us. Um, and I think the recent revelations about the National Security Agency and other uh, law enforcement and anti-terror agencies which are gathering massive new databases on the public uh, make clear that the Privacy Act has been disregarded. That's why I'm wondering, does it need to be rehabilitated? Does it need some changes? Are you afraid that if we open the door that they'll just disregard it and just throw it out? There's no question that there's a danger in the current legislative environment uh, on, on Capitol Hill and with this administration of opening up the Privacy Act. I think the better solution legislatively is to uh, pass a new uh, statute which adds onto the requirements of the Privacy Act and again uh, suggests and states clearly that the guiding fair information principles that were important in the 1970s are still viable and important today and they should be guiding this government and its behavior. So what should this statute say? I mean, it should c- encompass things like the, you know, the NSA surveillance, the warrantless wi- wiretapping, those kinds of issues, right? Absolutely. H- have you, uh, at the ACLU, have you developed a model statute that you think should be passed? 
you know, we're working on it. In fact, we've met with uh, Hale staff recently about what to do to make the Privacy Act viable once again, to help gain control over agencies which seem to be out of control. Um, and and we're, we're in the discussion stage. And I, I, so I think people are beginning to, to recognize this problem, that agencies disregard the act, and see that, that their personal information is at risk and that of their constituents as well. Well, I, we only have a few minutes left, and I would love for you to give the website and tell people how they can get involved and how they can support the efforts to protect their privacy and their civil liberties. Mari, it's been a pleasure. Um, it's good for people to reach out, and the way to do it is to, to go to the ACLU's website, which is www.aclu.org. Uh, many of the topics we've talked about today are available uh, by searching under the word privacy or, or technology and liberty. And I would encourage your uh, listeners to, to go to our website to, to keep coming back. We're constantly posting information about new government programs we're hearing about uh, and our efforts to combat them and force the government to uh, use the benefits of the information age in a way that is consistent with our constitutional norms and our expectations of, uh, for privacy under the Fourth Amendment. You know, I just want to tell you, I have really spent a lot of time looking through your website, and you have wonderful things about the ACLU. You know, people can find out if they want to join, they can. If they don't want to, but they can still find out about the legislative updates over there, your action center. They can find out about what's happening with secure flight versus caps or whatever, and, and they can get more information. Now, can they also get you have sample letters that they can write? To their we, legislators? We do, and, and our members uh, get what are called action alert items almost every time there's a major legislative occurrence uh, about one of these privacy issues. And what we do then is we send an email, and it, it gives essentially a model or a template letter for a phone call or a letter or an email uh, that can be sent off quickly uh, to your member of Congress, to the White House, uh, and also to your state uh, officials as well. Terrific. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. I know you've just, it's been really tough with your busy schedule, but we really appreciate it. And I hope that maybe next year you'll come back and tell us a new legislative update. Mari, it'd be my pleasure, and, and keep on fighting the good fight. All right, we will keep in touch, and thank you so much. You have been listening to Timothy Sparapani, who is legislative attorney at the ACLU in Washington, D.C., and you can go to www.aclu.org. Also, each state has its own ACLU uh, program, and you can go to your own state. Now, the one in D.C. is dcaclu.org. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. Please go and visit KUCI.org slash privacy piracy where you can see our previous guests, listen to their interviews, download the podcast, subscribe to our podcast, and also see our upcoming guests. And we hope that you will join us every week from 5 to 6 p.m., at 88.9 FM in Irvine at Privacy Piracy. Thank you very much, my engineer, Lloyd Beauchamp, and uh, we will see you next week. Thank you. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.